Welcome to the How Soccer Explains Leadership Podcast, where we explore leadership principles through the lens of the beautiful game. Welcome back to How Soccer Explains Leadership. Thanks a lot again for your download, for being a part of this show. I am Phil Dark, your host. And I get to do this every week, and I absolutely love doing what I get to do. And so today is no exception. I have a great interview with my friend Jesse Bradley. He is a man that has many hats that he wears and doing some amazing things around the world. He is a pastor up in Seattle, Grace Community Church, as well as an author, a former professional athlete. He played a lot of soccer in his day. He's a leader of many things, an adoption advocate. I could go on and on. I'm not going to. I'm going to let him share a little bit about his life and what he's doing, what God's doing through him. But right now, I also want to just remind you to go and join the Facebook group if you haven't done so already. That's a great place if you want to continue this conversation with me, with some others who are talking about these things. It would be fantastic for you to join there and just connect with me and connect with others there. Also, if you have any questions for me or Paul, if you have questions for Jesse after this interview, just shoot me an email, phil at howsoccerexplainsleadership.com, and we can go from there. So without more on that, I just want to start this conversation that we get to have today with Jesse. Jesse, how you doing, man? Phil, I'm doing well. And great memories of first meeting you back at Mount Hermon camp. And I know we both love that camp. Hopefully we'll get back there again soon. I know you're still going. But it was great to be, you know, serving there that week, meet you, and then just start really start the conversation on, you know, orphans, soccer, of course, leadership, lots of great topics. And I just love how you continue to serve orphans around the world. And also just that connection between athletes, orphans, and just, yeah, glad to be here today. Welcome everyone who's a coach, a player, a parent, a kid, someone in the marketplace, leaders. I just love this podcast and the theme. Yeah. Well, thanks again for joining. Like you said, I mean, we got to connect at Mount Hermon several years ago, just probably, I think it was in the coffee shop, just in the morning, just having some coffee and had some great conversations there. And I've no doubt we'll have another great one today. As I always get to do, one of the things I absolutely love about my, the interviews I get to do are just hearing stories. And, you know, I know you have a very long story that we're not going to get into every little nook and cranny, but I do would love to just hear, you know, just Briefly share your story and how you got to be where you are today, just how soccer has been a big part of that journey. And, and then, you know, and then we can just kind of chat about some of those things after, after you tell your, you know, bring us up to date. Sounds great, Phil. You know, I grew up in Minnesota and the first place I lived, it was an apartment in the parking lot of the football stadium. So Golden <laughs> Gophers, Big Ten. And I saw sports being played at age three. I told my parents, that's what I want to do when I'm, when I'm an adult. I want to play sports. So I had that dream of playing professional sports. Basketball was my primary passion. But sometimes in life, your gifts lie in a different area. And I didn't discover that until a little later on when the soccer coach saw me playing basketball and thought, like, this is a goalkeeper. And I'm grateful <laughs> for him. He's a phenomenal coach. He's really a legend. Minnesota United right now in the MLS. His son, Manny Lagos, runs it. His name was Buzz Lagos. And he started training me to be a goalkeeper. And we did well. Uh, we won the state title in the Metrodome, you know, 6,000 fans hmm. a couple times in high school. I played three sports in high school and also just playing on Olympic development teams with him. And then I played at Dartmouth College on the East Coast, had another great coach. And one of the lessons I think when, you, when you're finding soccer teams is just find the best coach because that coach is going to develop you. That coach is going to see your talent. That coach is going to set the right culture. 
And Bobby Clark at Dartmouth College is another legend. I mean, he's mm -hmm. coached in many countries. He was a goalkeeper in Scotland. He won a national title at Notre Dame. And to be with him and around him for four years, I mean, that's a dream come true. Seriously, yep. that continues to have impact on my life today. And we won the Ivy League twice. We made it to the final eight. We lost to Rutgers. Alexi Lawless was on that team. I feel like it's a game maybe we should have won, but we'll let that go <laughs> and, and move it on. You know, I, I was able to play after college as well. Played overseas, Scotland, Zimbabwe for a team there in Bulawayo, the Highlanders. And you know, I thought I'd probably play till I was 35 or 40 because goalkeepers, they have longevity. I mean, yep. physically, they can continue long past when a midfielder usually retires. And so that was my plan. You know, maybe I'll go into coaching after that or we'll see sports psychology, but goalkeeping, it's all I wanted to do. And sometimes in life, you know, it's going one direction and then things shift and it's out of your control and life isn't going that direction anymore. And that's what happened to me. My career tragically ended. I took a prescribed medication to prevent malaria and I took it for a season. It built up toxic levels in my system and major side effects. Physically, the most serious was with my heart. That's tachycardia, which is a racing heartbeat, 160 beats a minute sitting still, atrial flutter, skipping beats, heart murmur. I mean, I was in pain on the left side of my chest day and night and didn't know if I was going to live. I was fighting for my life for a year. It took 10 years to fully recover. And there were also side effects of anxiety, depression, things I'd never experienced before and were really intense. And all of that ended my career. It was, I believe that sometimes the greatest things in life happen in the worst circumstances. And that was one of the most brutal times in my life, but it's also where so much transformation happened. And uh, we, we can circle back into some of that, but mm -hmm. I'll just say this, you know, being able to play is a gift. Having physical health or energy is a gift. And I thoroughly enjoyed really at all levels. And it's the relationships. When I look back, it's the relationships more than the wins or the losses and the character that you develop as you play sports. And, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for the people I've played with, the lessons I've learned. It does tie into how I lead today. And it, it was always a joy. You know, my parents got divorced when I was seven. And at that time, you know, probably the other biggest challenge in my life was, was that time and then how that affected me in the many years after that. And I really turned to academics and athletics and sports was one of those really outlets where there was such a pure joy. And when I got on the field, it was like kind of a relief and just so much fun. And, and I've always found that in playing. I still play today in a men's league. I work with the Sounders, Faith and Family Night, the Seattle Sounders here, go Sounders, shameless plug, <laughs> team's doing well. And, you know, my, my coach, Bobby Clark, in college, his son now, you know, who I knew then was probably in middle school at that point. He's the coach for the Huskies now. So mm. just love, you know, bringing our kids to those games, talking with Jamie and connecting there. And there's a guy from Bellevue College, soccer coach that comes to our church. There's another professional player, Tacoma Stars, who, you know, is, is at our church. And I just love um, that intersection, you know, faith, leadership, sports, soccer, goalkeeping, like we could talk for a while. So yeah, yeah, we there's could. a lot going on. We absolutely could, you know, we have, well, maybe we'll get done with this one and we'll do another one someday too, but you know, I'll do the part two, but I'd love to hear, as you just talked about there, you're still using a lot of these lessons, right. That you learned, you know, and I know that there are also, I'd like to tie it into some of the things you're doing now too. There are some different ways, you know, you speak, you do different things, but 
one of the things that I know you talk on is the idea of, you know, mindset and developing habit habits and purpose. And, and really that, that is something I know you learned through soccer and through the, some of the trials that you faced. Right. So can you just talk about that? Just those things that I just mentioned? Right on. You know, mindset for a goalkeeper, that's at least half the battle. Mm -hmm. And it's what's going on in between your ears. And that's true if you're in any position in leadership. That's true in life and in your relationships with family. What are you really thinking about? And what are you focusing on? And a couple of things that stood out to me in terms of mindset over the years. One is that the platform continued to get bigger, you know, from high school to college to professional. And what I learned early on, some of those initial games where there's thousands of people there, I found myself kind of on my heels, a little bit intimidated, a little scared, at times almost hoping the ball wouldn't come to me or just feeling unsure. And we all feel insecure. We all have those feelings of being scared. But I found that if I gave into those, like it really affected my play. And so I had to intentionally have a different mindset where I wasn't going to let fear prevail. And, and I was going to go all out. I wasn't going to overthink it. That was something that I, I kind of have a tendency to easily do is overthink it. And it's like, I had to turn some of that off. And as a goalkeeper, if you make a mistake, you can't dwell on it. You got to delete that. You got to almost hope for the same situation to happen again so that you can, you know, the next time do it right. And you know, I remember the first time in the Metrodome, I was terrified. And the second time we got there, I was like, I'm just not going to let fear win. Because we won the game the first time, but fear won against me. And the second time, it's like fear is not going to win. Yep. And, and I believe, like, we don't have the spirit of timidity, but power and love. And it's like, let's overcome this. And so that was a lot of development for me is that area of mindset. Another one is how much pressure I put on myself. And what's interesting is that that continued to grow. Now, I'm just going to take a brief tangent here, faith-wise, but it's linked. And uh, everyone who's watching, maybe there's many different you know, beliefs that I respect you know, and honor each person. For me, I didn't grow up with faith, didn't grow up believing in God. And I came to know Jesus at Dartmouth College. I wasn't even looking for God. I took a class, Introduction to World Religions. The professor started teaching the Bible. I started reading it, asking 100 questions, kicking the tires. And uh, eventually, I'm like, there's so much historical evidence here. I don't think I can ignore it. And I ended up taking that step and some things shifted and on the field, things shifted and the pressure came off me. I started to enjoy the game. You know, I did an independent research project at Dartmouth and worked with athletes to see you know, how much pressure is the right amount of pressure measured in practice, games, you know, self-reporting. And it's interesting because there's like a bell-shaped curve where if you're not focused enough, then, you know, your performance is going to struggle. But if you're too intense and you're, you're focused, you know, on the result in a way that's, you know, kind of paralysis by analysis, or you white knuckle, or you just, this is the biggest game ever, again, your performance declines. So you want to stay in that zone where you're kind of light, you're quick, you're enjoying it, you know, you're relaxed, but you're, uh, again, you're, you're anticipating stuff. And I think that's when you play at your best. And what I noticed for me in terms of mindset is that, when I started to pray with other athletes for the games, like it just changed the way I, I approached the game. All of a sudden soccer didn't mean everything is important, but it was like, I could just play at a different level. And, mm -hmm. and so that was a mindset thing for me is learning how to land it in that zone. But one other mindset piece that I'll mention is, 
you know, what do you do with the thoughts that come into your, really, you're thinking during the day, they're coming in all the time for all of us. That first thought comes in. It might be a thought that's destructive. It might be a thought that's not true. It might be a thought that's selfish. It might be a thought that's impure. You know, whatever those thoughts are, they come into our minds. And what are you going to do with that thought? And, and you don't have to harbor it or entertain it. You don't have to welcome it, dwell on it. In fact, you can reject it if it's not good and then intentionally choose something else. And that's what I had to do in the nets. Like, you know, if I made a terrible play, I can't dwell on that. That can't stay in there. Like, I got to reject that and, and then come back to that readiness where the next play comes. And I'm not hanging my head. I'm not sitting there in shame. It's like, game on. Let's go. And to be able to do that quickly on the field, it was almost like a discipline that translated well off the field. And when I was sick and recovering, you know, I had all kinds of thoughts that would come in. They were depressing, discouraging, no hope, anxiety. And I had to just say, no, that doesn't belong here. So my mind doesn't go in the ditch. And I'm going to intentionally choose something that's true, that's right, that's good, that's encouraging. And then that's the thought I'm going to land on. And just like a goalkeeper keeps the ball out of the net, you know, I had to keep those thoughts uh, out of my out of my zone because thoughts are powerful and, and renewing the mind. That is what brings life into our relationships, our attitude. And, and I believe that greatest battle is so often between the ears. So those are some mindset things and leadership and sports yeah. faith, you know, every day as I think through things. It's amazing when you stop and pay attention to your thoughts how many dozens of thoughts we have every day that just aren't right. Mm -hmm. And, and again, no guilt in that, but we just have to be actively leading our mind so that we don't end up, you know, in a dark place because it's easy to go there. And, and I've just seen so much fruit from that, that one discipline. Absolutely. I mean, you just think about our parenting, right? I mean, how many lies are our kids listening to? that just mm -hmm. simply are not true, whether it's at school because they, they're projecting what others are thinking about them. Or, you know, as we talk about as Christians lies from the enemy about who we are, right? And, and, you know, and just understanding what that looks like. You know, you talked about in the goal, just yesterday, I was coaching a university and a keeper and I was warming her up at halftime and she just looked at me, she goes, I'm really nervous. And mm -hmm. I said, have you played this before? She goes, what do you mean? I go, have you played keeper before? She goes, yeah. I said, have you played in a game before? She says, yeah. I said, just go do that. Right. Yeah. So what you're talking about, right? This idea yeah. of to remind ourselves that we have the knowledge, we have the ability we have if, or else we wouldn't be there. Right. You wouldn't be in college playing if you didn't have that somewhere in you. Right. Yeah. Now you might not yeah. be the best in the world. You might not be whatever, but to go out and if you play tight, if you play worried, if you play in fear, you will be playing worse. And she yeah. went out there and had a great half. Yeah. But if she would have gone out like thinking, I go, you're thinking way too much. Yes. You know, there is that that sweet spot of you got to yeah. think, yeah. but not be thinking about each move and what you're going to do. Be thinking about, OK, where is this ball going to go before you get it? But as you get that ball, you just play. Yeah. Like, what does that look like? And I think there's so many, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that as far as yeah. in your current, you know, role as a pastor, as a leader and of a lot of different things, how does that play out there as far as that, you know, even talking about developing habits and muscle memory. And, you know, if we do things enough, they will become part of just who we are. And when we're making decisions, if we make decisions enough with our values and our core beliefs, they will just 
those those decisions will be made, right? You know, what, what do you think about that? That's right. I love how you coached her. I mean, that's what a good coach does. You bring out the best in your players and you know who you need to calm down. You know who you need to kind of get cranked up for the right. games. And you know who needs to be held accountable and you know who needs to be encouraged. And I remember mm-hmm. that as a goalkeeper, there was 10 different personalities. I'm talking to them the whole game. And I've got to know them and know what makes them tick and bring right. out the best. And that's true in parenting. It's like, how do you bring out the best in your kids? And a timely word can make all the difference. Uh, I remember when my coach would pull me aside and say something. I remember before Yale, he knew like this was a game. I have league titles on the line. He knew we were going to be visitors. He knew we were going to be facing just really an onslaught all, all game. And he was just like, this is your game. This is your game right here. And he, I just tell you, he had confidence in me. He knew the moment. And like that affirmation right there, I mean, we ended up winning one nothing. We kind of stole the game and we got the Yag League title, you know, and, and just pulling someone aside, recognizing what they need. That's powerful. And, and I think that, you know, we don't want to end up in places where we either have inflated views of ourselves or deflated. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to be deflated, kind of be down on, well, maybe I'm not that good. Maybe I can't come through today. Maybe I'm just off. I'm probably gonna let the team down. I made this mistake before. Or you can get inflated and think like, yeah, I'm the best. This team revolves around me. Like, watch me go. And sometimes when you win a championship, what I saw in my experience is the toughest year was the year after that because the team's kind of inflated and it's easy to get complacent and you lose some of that hunger. And you you kind of have blind spots on some of the weaknesses of the team because you think, yeah, we just won the ring. You know, in the year after the championship, it was often a letdown. So you know, trying to balance that out and just stay healthy view of self, healthy view of team. And that's one that's, I think, humble, hungry, realistic, and a lot of collaboration, really working well together. Yeah. And how does that play out in, you know, in the real world, so to speak, outside, outside the lines, right? As you're, yes. whether you're, you know, leading a, a staff, right? And, and as you have people in your, in your, on your team now, right at the church or in other areas how does how what's the analogy we have for as we're living today yeah you know soccer is all about collaboration and that's the one thing that carries over and the longer i'm doing leadership the more i see it's about collaboration and i mean in preschool you say does the person play well with others mm-hmm. but man that's true your entire life you know H- how do you really do as a team player in the different settings And so in Seattle, for example, when I got here, we started something where we gathered together churches and ministries. Now there's about 100 churches and ministries. And it's just so exciting to do stuff together. You kind of break the norm. If the norm is, you know, sadly, sometimes in the the Christian world, it's competition or isolation. It's like, no, we just had an event called Serve Our City. And, And we brought together many different churches to clean up the neighborhoods and to do some work, some landscaping, some painting, you know, it was, it was a lot of different projects and a lot of different people coming together. I think it's so sweet when you get people coming together from different nations and ethnicities. That's one thing I love about playing right now. Like I play pickup games Saturday mornings and I just see people gather from all different countries. And there's this bond that happens when you're on the field together. And you know, our church when I first got there was, was predominantly white. And now it's so you look around, it looks more like our neighborhood. It looks like heaven. It just feels so much better, you know, to have that collaboration. Collaboration happens multi-generationally, I think, too. And there's so much to learn from each other and inspiring examples. So for that to carry out, you know, in a soccer team, when people know their role, 
and you and, and you know they have responsibilities and they work hard on those and and everyone's you know honing in on their craft and their role you're talking before about development and and i'd say it, it's true in soccer it's true in a lot of things that we're doing there's first that you know unconscious incompetence mean like i don't even know what i don't know and then it's like conscious incompetence okay now i'm becoming aware of what i need to learn and i'm starting to get motivated and then it's conscious competence which i have to focus on it like i'm i'm trying to put the pieces together it's not going quick i'm thinking about it but it's working it's happening and then you get to that level where it's unconscious competence and and you think about that let's just say tying your shoe you know a kid my kids first they didn't know how to do it and then they started to realize, oh, I need to learn how to do this. And then they focused hard and they could tie their shoe. And now it's like they just put their shoe on, they tie it, and I'm thinking about it. And that's true for me with distribution as a goalkeeper, you know, punting, kicking, throwing the ball. That That's true in my diving and breakaways. It's like you break it down, you learn it, you grow in it, you practice it, and you become familiar. And when you're on a team where everyone's kind of spurring one another on and you know your roles, and you know kind of where someone likes to pass, you know what run they like to make, you know when you cross it, who's going to be there. And, and you get to know each other so well. It's like the, the experience grows and the joy grows and it's exponential. And, yeah. you know, the old proverb, you go faster alone, you go further together. And I see this in, in every realm. And collaboration is something that I feel like, you know, we're United States of America, but sometimes we're not as united as we want to be or should be. And I think collaboration is, is what's going to help us change the culture. And we're going to, we need each other. You just can't, you can't describe it any other way than bottom line. We need each other. And so uh, let's bring out the best in each other. And that's true on the field. When you're in an environment, you say, well, how do you know it's healthy? Like at a workplace, there's different markers for health, but everyone in the room knows like when it's healthy, when it's toxic. And you've got to be someone, I think, who can change a culture, who can step into a mess, change a locker room, change a culture. That's leadership. Find people who are like-minded, share the same values, the same dream, get the right people around you, you know, staff according to your weaknesses and go with the best idea, empower people, two-way communication, safety, trust, the, the core of relationships is trust. All these, you know, they're true in, in the office are true in the church that are true on the team as well. Yeah, you you just said like a, a mini book right there in that last answer. So I I will tell you, like folks, go back and listen to that. There's so much in there. I'm gonna I'm gonna mine it a little bit here. One of the things you talked about is you talked about that idea of from unconscious incompetence to unconscious competence. I mean, really what you described there is why we practice, right? I mean, if if you are on a game and you're you're either incompetent and not knowing and understanding, or you're having to think about it the whole game, it's too late if you have to think about it in a game, right? Maybe when you're like seven, you can get away with that. But as you go, when you're in college, when you're playing for Dartmouth, if you're thinking every time you get the ball, okay, now I need to remember how to throw the ball and now I got to go, okay, I'm going to, it would be too late. The defender would be there, right? You have to, boom, you get that ball, you see it, counterattack, you're getting the, you're leading that player and they're going, right? You can't think. Right. And if you're thinking it's too late and that's the reality of the soccer field as you, but also as you talked about in the, in the workplace, in your marriage, in your parenting, right? I mean, if you're having to, to think, you know, about different things in the middle of that moment, oftentimes, you know, if you haven't already decided, okay, I'm going to count to five before I yell. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Count to five, chances are you won't. Right. But if you just 
if you go on what your instinct is in that moment, chances are it won't be the learned behavior that you want to do, right? But you talked about that too, knowing all your players, knowing everyone in your organization. That's why we do the disc training. That's why I've just spent, you know, four or five days away from home training different universities and their soccer teams and the volleyball team that I did. Like able to understand, you need to study your people. Yes. You need to study them and understand who they are, how they're wired or else you'll make assumptions about them that aren't right. You know, and you also need to know as a, as a keeper, what is the skill set of your outside back, right? Mm -hmm. If they aren't at the level, hopefully at college, they're going to be able to handle that ball. But if you give it to them and they don't have good foot skills, you're going to see that ball right back at you down your throat, right? You don't want that. So these are things that we need to understand and it does need to be a, unconscious competence or else again we're not going to be able to to do that but one of the things i do want to camp out on a little bit you talked about it right there at the end it's the idea of culture it's the idea if you look around the room and everyone knows it's healthy or toxic right yeah what i want to spend a little bit of time on is how when you have that toxic setting when you have that toxic culture there are you know maybe a few maybe it's a a a group of people maybe it's one a virus how yes. do you work with that virus? How do you, what if it gets to the point where it's, you know, you got to cut that virus out? What does that look like in, yeah. in reality on a team and in any team really in the field or off the field? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, culture is almost more important than skill and strategy in a lot mm-hmm. of workplaces. And culture is one of those things that's so real. It affects, it's great if you're in an environment where there's clear values. You know, in our team right now, we identified some clear values and that's going to be, you know, collaboration, common goals. We're going to celebrate victories together. And when you have some of those goals in place, you know, not just on a wall, but then you start to implement, live them out. And it it does affect everything. It affects your your priorities, affects your decision-making. You know, going back to soccer, it's like each level you climb, the decision-making is quicker. You got less space and less time. So you got to make good decisions. And leadership is making good decisions. And the good decisions aren't just numerical, they're relational. And to be able to do both is, is so important. When a culture's toxic or things are off, It depends for how long and how many people are involved. There are times when you need a whole new staff. You know, there are times where you switch clubs. (laughs) There there are some systemic things that you don't necessarily are going to just overcome those quickly. And, And the more prolonged it's been, the more deep it is, the more drastic the change has to be. Now, if it's, let's say, one or two people, you know, I remember reading a Bible verse that said, drive out the mocker and out goes the strife. And and I was like, drive out the mocker. That doesn't sound Christian. But I'll tell you, you remove one or two people that gossip and slander and like undermine. It's like, it's amazing how that culture can change, you know, when, when that happens. And sometimes it's, you know, one or two people on a team and they might be the most talented because usually the most talented get away with the most. <laughs> but all of a sudden when there's accountability, when there's a standard there, it's like everybody rises. And, and so even though you lose one talented player or maybe two, when you get the culture healthy again, the collective gain from everyone, you know, relief, you know, there's no double standards, there's no awkwardness. And now we can just be ourselves and laugh and play. And I mean, it just gets fun again. And so it's going to be worth it. Those are the hard decisions. And if you're, you know, staffing, it's so important to really hire carefully. And, you know, what's the scorecard when you hire? What are you really looking for? And to identify that because one 
wrong hire can affect an organization in massive ways. So it's it's worth, I think, waiting for the person, taking your time and doing it right when, when you make the hire. So there's a lot of, of levels there to, to culture, but I think it's great if it's clear. You know, we say clear communication. It's great if it's written down, agreed upon, and then it's great if it's lived out. And those are some initial steps that you, you can really think through as you're um, setting the culture, if you're a leader. You know, I've been in a situation where the culture wasn't good before. And I thought I've got three options. And this was a prayerful decision for me. But do I go after the couple people who are, you know, causing the problems? You know, I'm underneath them and challenge them. And maybe it'll lead to some division or, you know, it's like it's going to get messy. And I just didn't feel like that was the right thing. And then I thought, well, can I just totally leave and just start over somewhere? And I didn't feel like that kind of releasing and leaving was the right solution. So I had to learn how to just work as well as I could with them and try to bring slow change to the culture. But I was in there for several years and it's different. That's why I say it's not a formula. It, It takes wisdom. I like to pray for wisdom. You know, I just simple prayer, God, please give me wisdom. I'm facing this mess. I don't know how to walk through that. And it's amazing how, how many times clarity comes after that prayer. But, but, but yeah, a lot of different situations and so many different dynamics of where you are in the team. Are you on the bench? Are you a starter? Are you a captain? Are you the coach? Are you assistant coach? You know, and you don't have to have an official position to be a leader. Leader is influence. Use your influence as well as you can to influence those people around you, build on islands of strength, start to find some people who are like-minded and then run with it. Sometimes you're going to be parallel to the mess, but more people are going to see the health and they're going to start to move over there. And people are going to see the contrast. The contrast is going to grow. So don't lower your standard. Don't be influenced by the, the junk around you. Don't give into it. It's so easy to just repeat it and imitate it. And then just, you're doing the very thing you don't like. <laughs> and so don't fall into that trap. Just take that high road. And uh, you'll be surprised how many people are noticing what you're doing. Lead by example. It's going to be more, even more powerful than your words. People do notice and they respect you for it. They might not thank you right away. But down the road, you're planting pictures in people's minds. You're giving them hope. And that's so important. Definitely. I mean, it's something I've seen in so many teams. You know, you have the one or two players. And if the coach lets them get away with it, there's, you know, carnage. And there's just, there's, there is that wake of destruction behind it, right? You know, there's bodies behind it that are just suffering and struggling. I love what you said there to, you know, and I talk to people all the time about this. Everyone on the team is a leader. Yeah. Right. I don't care if you're the freshman on that high school team or on the college team, you are you're leading someone and you That's can right. be that leader. If you see that toxicity, you can come into that. And like you said, find those people. Most people will want the healthy culture, mm-hmm. you know, if they yep. knew about it. Right. So lead them to say not not create more strife, but to come in and say this is a better option. Yes. Right. If you if rather than just saying this is a problem, you guys are terrible. I can't believe you're doing this. Offer yeah. a better solution, offer a better option yeah. that, that they would want to do, right? That the coach can see if the coach isn't seeing it. Now, if the coach is seeing it, how can you help the coach 
in bringing that health. You know, I can think on the top of my head, several situations I've talked with just in the last six months with yeah. different people in unhealthy situations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, cause there is that challenge and, and Paul Jobson, who's the co-host of the show at Baylor, we talked about this very thing. And, and he says, you know, he self-admittedly is saying, you know, I sometimes keep people too long cause I want to, I think the best of them, which yeah. I, I totally understand. I, I hate firing people. I mm-hmm. hate my but. If, if it gets to that point where, as you said, that mocker to, you know, to say, mm-hmm. okay, there's the door. Yeah. What do you think as far? I know there's no formula. There's no <laughs> one right answer. Right. But at what point is that the answer rather than, especially yeah. as a coach, because we as coaches know that part of our role as a coach mm-hmm. is to help our players to flourish, not just on the field, but off the field. Right. So yeah. There's that balance too, right? So what, how do you know that even in your job now as a pastor, obviously, if there's people that's part of your job, it obviously is to help people to flourish. So what does that look like? What's that balance? Yeah. Hopefully it's not a surprise for that player or that teammate, that employee. I mean, it should be a situation where it's maybe a first time, a second time. And, and all along you're giving them every chance, you know, Hey, what do you need? You're doing it in a way that's humble. Hopefully asking them questions. Do they understand? You know, hey, and you're giving them feedback too, direct feedback. That's part of the accountability. Hey, when you say this, I feel this. When you say this, it affects that person that way. When you don't do this, like this is how it hurts the team. You know, when you do that, that's how it undermines us. And and, and it happens quite often, you know, on teams. And I think, you know, what's ideal? And start there. What are we going for? What's ideal? Okay, how do we get there? You try to get people's input. You try to hear their ideas and they get ownership that way when they have input. And it, it's not just like heavy handed, but it, it's, we're all committed to this team being as good as it can be. Right. And you find that common ground and it's like, well, what's that going to look like on the field and off the field? And like, how do we get there and try to help people be part of the solution? What I've seen is that sometimes when there's a complaint, it's linked to someone's passion. So someone might come up now and say, I don't think we're doing enough around the community, you know, and I might say, okay, what do you think we should do? And uh, well, I think we should hand up more free food. I think there's a lot of people starving. Okay, how would we do that? Well, I think we could partner with these groups. Well, are you willing to lead some of that? Yeah, actually I am. I could put that together on Saturday mornings. We got something, you know, so instead of this person complaining to three friends, now they're coming directly. If something's off, come to the leader and just share your heart. Say, this is what I'd love to see. And uh, in some of those, you can turn around. Sometimes you want to take that person out to lunch early on. When, when someone's not quite buying in or doesn't understand or seems like they're going sideways, spend a little time with that person. Ask them some questions. Questions are, are disarming. And ask them so much, hey, what are your thoughts? What are your feelings? Why? You know, you often have to ask people three times to really find out how they're doing. How are you doing? Fine. No, how are you really doing? Well, actually, it's this. And how are you feeling about that? And then that third time they ask you what's going on. So you don't want to if if now you have people are taking sides. Now there's clicks. Now there's it's trouble. So try to catch it early. And there are going to be times where you need to make changes. You try to transition it well. Hopefully there's clear standards. Hopefully you're communicating with that person several times. But there's just some people that don't have the desire to change, don't have the ability to change. Their feet are dug in. And those are times where where you have to make those difficult calls. As a leader, you can't operate in fear. As a parent, you can't operate in fear. 
And you can't be afraid of certain people. I remember when a coach was afraid of a player. It's like the whole team hit turmoil because the coach was afraid of the player. You can't be afraid of ultimately the consequences. You know, you can't be afraid of, well, if I do the right thing here, what if three people don't like me? You know, if you live in that, you're not going to be effective as a leader. And you're not going to create that culture. So it's really a freedom from what people think about you sometimes. And it's just a commitment to doing the right thing in the right way and the right timing too. And leadership, I'll tell you, this has been true during COVID. You know, before COVID, there was a lot more 90-10, you know, 99-1, 80-20 decisions where I knew 80, 90, 99% of people are going to be happy and like 5, 10, 20% might not like it. I'll tell you, COVID just leaves us in this pandemic. I mean, people are going to leave if we don't reopen. And then yeah. we reopen and people leave because we reopen. And then we say, put on masks and people leave because we put on masks. And I say, okay, now we can take off masks. People leave to take off masks. And I mean, you just go down the line. It's like anxiety is amped up. People are, you know, very opinionated. And, and sometimes we just lose our patience and perspective and leading through those times is a challenge. And, and so how can you be a non-anxious presence? How can you try to just calmly explain what we're doing, why we're doing it, the why is so important. And then ultimately I've got to release the results. You know, I, I'm going to do the right thing as best as I can. If I make a mistake, I've got to own it. Because if a leader makes a mistake, don't just tuck it under or act like everything's fine. They'll say, you know, I blew that, could have done that better. So I've got to own that. But ultimately, I'm going to try to do the right things, communicate it well. And then the results, you know, those I can't control all the time. And I just can't operate in fear. Yeah. And I just thought about a lot of stuff as you were talking there. And, you know, I, I, I think that the the idea of just, as you said, owning the, or, you know, just doing, owning your behavior, owning it. You can't, you can't understand, or you can't know what that result's going to be. You, you're, there's, you don't know. Giving them the opportunity, catching it early. Yes. And I think that there are just times where the people are so they're into, they're really into what they want. It's an individualism, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's just a self-focus. And I think sometimes to be able to come in and understand where that unhealth comes from. And one of my pastors said, one of the, my things, I love what he said. He said, what is the lie that you're believing that makes your behavior okay? There and it go. was a very powerful question, right? Because yeah. I think that's what's going on in a lot of these instances is that there is a lie that they're believing. The other thing that you talked about there is the idea that it helps everything. And it not only helps, it's critical in order to have a healthy organization, a healthy team at any level. And I've talked about this before. Patrick Lencioni in the book, The Advantage, talks about healthy teams. And he has the healthy leadership team is the first thing to have, right? Where we know each other, we trust each other, we have the vulnerability, so on and so forth. But then it's create clarity, communicate clarity, reinforce clarity, right? These idea, as you just talked about, to have the clear rules, to have the clear values, to have the clear goals. And then when people are not living up to those values that, you know, you as a team have agreed on together, then it's really an easy decision if they refuse to live up to those values. And so that's something that I think you said in there, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong there, but that's what I heard you saying there in there is to have those clear values, live them out. And then at the end of the day, if someone self-selects out, that's effectively mm -hmm. what they're doing. They're yeah. self-selecting out of that. They don't want to be in that culture. And you know yeah. what? That's yeah. their prerogative. Chances are mm -hmm. it's because they're unhealthy if it's a healthy culture, mm -hmm. which is then the right decision for everybody. So what do you think? Do you agree with all that? 
yeah, don't water down the vision. You know, don't don't give up or compromise the potential. Don't bring that down to just fit in what the current status is. And I, I believe we're all influencers. You're a culture changer. I like, you know, it's the old metaphor, but be more of the thermostat than the thermometer. The thermometer just reflects what's in the room. The thermostat, it's all about the change. And that is a, a difficult road sometimes to that transformational leadership, to step into teams, to step into environments, workplaces, and, and be the one who's going to initiate that change. But that's where, you know, we need it on so many levels. We really yeah. do right now. And, uh, and I think that, you know, sports, ultimately soccer is just a platform for real life. And, you know, I've been in the locker rooms, first place team, been in locker rooms, the last place team and the attitudes, the relationships, it's so different. And, and we really do need that clarity from job descriptions, role descriptions, what's expected here as well. And, and finding the right people is going to be huge. Relationships are ultimately what life is about. Quality of relationships determine the quality of your life. And those relationships, building in that trust, shared experiences, empowering people, giving them on-the-job training, all that is, is extremely significant. When I think about you know, some of the changes in soccer in, in America, what I'm seeing that I think is encouraging on the soccer culture is you know, MLS is improving. That's an important piece because kids need that picture. Coaching is improving. Those mentors, you know, the, the principles, the concepts, the things the kids practice early on, it's huge. We need to see kids playing. Now, we were talking before about, you know, skills. We need to see kids playing in the backyard, in the streets, in the garage, in the playgrounds, far beyond practice. It can't just be, you know, during practice. And we need to see some of our best athletes choosing soccer. It can't be the fourth or fifth option. And so these elements, all of this is changing, you know, soccer. And you got to identify those key drivers. What's really going to move us forward? Because we've been talking about men's soccer, you know, moving up for the women have dominated. The women have been excellent. And we've been talking about the men, you know, going to the next level. We've kind of been stuck for a while. And, and, and so you got to identify what's really going to change it in America and then invest in those key things. Whether they've got great Nike or Adidas clothes, that's not going to make the difference. There's a lot of things that won't make the difference. And being able to identify those helps you kind of eliminate the sideways energy. And you've got to hone in on a couple of things because you can't do everything well. So really clear. What are we all about? How do we get there? Here's the key drivers. Does everyone know the strategy? Let's get everyone's ideas because there's going to be people who have much better ideas than you and listening to them. And going with those ideas is going to be an important part of the process. Let's shape it together, plan in pencil, but we're committed to moving forward. And that's what I hope for American soccer. And then, you know, for the places where you serve, you live, work, learn, or play, you know, bringing that to the table, that's tremendous. That's tremendous. It's, it's when, you know, it's not just going to be a couple of, you know, top executives in American soccer figure a few things out, although you need that, but it's when the people run with it. And the same is true in the church and the same is true in the marketplace. It's like when you get that high level of ownership and you get that passion, you connect passion and purpose. I mean, that's when, that's when the exciting stuff happens. Yeah, definitely. And something that you just made me think of there is you talked about U.S. soccer and the men's and it made me think about identity, right? And winning teams find ways to win. Losing teams tend to find ways to lose. And unfortunately, that's the, the reality but I want to talk a little bit about identity, not not of a of a team per se, but of us as human beings. And I know you talked about earlier on as you were telling your story about the time where, you know, you took the malaria medication and and 
all of a sudden you couldn't play. And yeah. And that goes to the core of identity when we as athletes, and you hear this all the time, someone gets hurt and then all they knew was that they were a soccer player or a football player or a baseball or bat, whatever the sport, you name the sport, it's the same yep. story, right? I know my wife, she had four knee surgeries in college and she had to stop playing soccer and then she went through a minor depression. It's you know, mm -hmm. another friend of mine stopped playing soccer, went through a minor depression. I mean, it happens uh, sometimes major depressions, right? Because it's who you are. Yeah. Right? And so I, I really love for you to talk about right now that idea of identity and forming identity and shaping identity in the context of, you know, you're, you have a, a program online on finding yeah. and spreading hope. And this is a big part of is knowing who you are, knowing your identity. But how did that help shape your identity back then, that experience? And how can you encourage others to understand and know their identity and why it's actually important? I think it's so important for athletes to know that who you are is more important than what you do. And in sports, so often you're graded, even the social approval, you know, the likes, it all comes in based on how well did you play and, and what position you have on the team, how many points, your stats, and even self-worth can be tied to that. And self-worth tied to performance is a trap. It's a performance trap because if you play well, it can lead to pride. If you don't play well, it can lead to shame. Neither are a good spot to end up in. We're human beings. We're not human doings. And, you know, that was a major shift for me. It might sound really basic and you kind of summarize that, you know, quickly, but I'll tell you for me, when my career ended, I was wrestling with who am I? And, and for a lot of people, their sense of worth and peace are linked to what they're doing and how well they're doing it. And it's good to be motivated. It's good to use your gifts. I don't want to diminish that. But I had to make a shift at that point because I realized I had lost so much. My identity can't be in, you know, school and getting better grades or just doing better on the athletic field, like it, or even having friends around. Because at that time, I didn't have any of that. I was just fighting for my life and thinking, well, who am I without these things? And so I made a shift. I think your identity is a choice. It's kind of like dropping an anchor. It's like, where are you going to drop that anchor? And, and for me, it was a shift. And I realized the identity needed to be landing somewhere that's not going to change. I can't lose it going away. And for me personally, that was God's presence and love. And it's like, that's the one thing I still have. I felt like, and it's more important than anything else. And so I'm going to shift my identity there. And when I did that, it was so freeing because there's this, already this acceptance, this security, and then operating out of that. I think that's powerful for kids too. And they know they're loved by God. That, you know, because it's important to love yourself and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And, and those are, are good things. But there's another source of love from above. And when I discovered that, you know, later in life and then found my identity there, so many things came out of that that were positive. You know, I was able to forgive people I couldn't forgive before because, again, I was secure. I was forgiven. I was loved. I was able to, like, have this relationship with God and other people where I let them in. Before that, I would just try to do better, perform better. I knew they were interested in the part of my life that was going well, but I thought no one really wanted to come into the pain and the ugliness, and no one was really interested in that, and certainly God wouldn't be. You know, he only wants me to just be intellectually impressive or theologically pray great or, you know, that. But, you know, that was so freeing to realize, no, I'm fully loved and to let people into that part of me, that vulnerable part, you know, that's where connection happens. And that's where relationships get real and go deep. And those were new things to me. I just started to become more grateful. I was literally writing down 10 things I was thankful for every day instead of focusing on what I lost, you know, what I still have. And 
some of these shifts happened out of that identity shift. And that is one of those foundational shifts. And we have a lot of levels to our identity. You know, we have a family, we have a place of origin, sometimes we have a job and we link those. But I'll tell you, those aren't the deepest um, places to land your identity. And, and so I'm just encouraging anyone that's watching because performance is a roller coaster that goes up and down. And it's a cruel place to try to land your identity. And it's just so freeing when you get off that thing and uh, you just have peace. And so that's something that, you know, they're not going to necessarily teach you in school, but I don't think there's many things that are more important in life than that as well. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You you hit it on the head there as far as it's not your performance. It's not what you do. Because if that's it, then that's going to fail you. That's going to fail, right? I mean, anything that that is based on our performance, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be lasting, right? Because our bodies will get old. Our bodies will age, and we're not going to be able to play a game our whole life. There will be something after. So what is that identity grounded in? Hopefully you're able to figure that out while you're playing and not just after, after you've crashed hard somewhere and hit bottom, you know, there is a way to do it before you hit there. Right. And that's the hope and prayer is that you're able to do that. So that's, that's, that's one area that I wanted to to touch on too. But the other is as, as you were playing, as you're leading, as you're seeing and, and going into today and all the way through the idea of servant leadership. And the idea of, you know, going back to healthy cultures, you know, healthy cultures have a lot of servant leaders. I mean, just, it just is leaders, greatest leaders need to be great followers too. Right. And know how to do that well. But what does that look like? What does that look like playing? And how does it look like today in your life? Yeah. You were touching on earlier where it's so easy to be self-consumed. It's so easy to be me centered or me first. And ultimately, that's destructive. It's kind of misleading because at first it feels good. It's like, yeah, all about me. What do I want? Ooh, I got what I want. But then you kind of realize like, oh, generosity is better than hoarding. Or, you know, <laughs> you, you start to realize like later on, like, eh, this isn't as good as it first appeared. And we live in a culture where sociologists say, you know, they just don't see many cultures that there's so much isolation, so much loneliness, and then so much self-promotion. And you see it in so many different areas. Now, you know, I'm not saying it's wrong to have social media accounts or personal branding. You know, you can use that for good. I'm not saying it's wrong to have money. You can use that for good. It's a tremendous blessing. So there's a lot of things that if we understand that we steward them, but don't own them, I'm taking care of this for a time. So I'm going to steward this as well as I can. Basically, I didn't come into the world with anything and I'm not going to leave with anything. You know, there's, there's not a big U-Haul on your way. Um, out of this earth. Like, so I've got this limited amount of time. And so how am I going to invest my time, my talents, uh, my tread? What are the relationships that are most important? And how can I serve? When you take an approach and instead of thinking, what could you give me? But instead, how could I serve you? Like when, when a group of people have that mentality, there's no limits to, to what can be done to transform communities, neighborhoods, teams, different marketplace settings, when it, and it's contagious. It, it's taught and it's caught. When you see it lived out, that's what you want to do. You know, when I had a coach who his whole life was that, it wasn't just in one arena, but his whole life was lived that way. And then he would say, it's the we things. It's how you do the little things. And we'd watch him do the little things right. And then it was almost like, how do we not follow that example? You know, how do we not do that? And it's countercultural. What is more common is, you know, how can I get mine? How can I get more? How can I ultimately make it about me and check all my boxes to make me happy? 
And it's a shift in America so often to go from me to we. When I lived in Africa and Zimbabwe, there was so much generosity. There was so much community. There was so much kindness. And the people didn't have much money. There was drought. There was AIDS. There was famine. There was corruption. And yet they rose above it. And I thought, you know, hospitality is not about how much you have in your home. It's about what you have in your heart. And if you truly care for people and have compassion, it doesn't matter what's in your bank account. It doesn't matter what kind of clothes you wear. You know, when you have that mentality to serve, this is what's going to happen is you help other people experience, you know, the best things in life. I often say, you know, I'm just a thirsty who discovered some living water and want to help other guys, you know, and ladies find living water. When you start to set people up for success, if you want to serve people, when you help them to realize their potential, you're going to end up kind of discovering your purpose along the way. And when you give, it's just so often you're the one who ends up receiving, you know, you teach, you end up being the one who learns. And when your mindset is to help and serve other people, then people want to rally around that and be a part of that. So, you know, don't, don't ignore your own needs, you know, set boundaries, all of those healthy practices, all those best practices. But and sometimes people might misunderstand your motive too, or, or might be harsh towards you, throw shade, and it's not accurate. You know, sometimes you do need to build up your resume to get into or GPA to get into a college or, you know, so it's not like you, you, you just ignore yourself, but instead of just focusing on yourself, you're focusing on other people and you're serving them well. And, and when you do that, uh, that's when you really come alive. That's what you're actually made to do is to serve other people. And you might just think through, if you're listening today, like, who do you want to help? What solutions do you bring? What talents do you have? What, what good thoughts do you have in the morning and at night? You know, kind of those good burdens where you, you just feel like maybe it's an individual or a group of people where you know you can make a difference. Maybe it's overseas. Maybe it's clean water. We're on a path right now. You know, in our church, we ran half marathon and uh, we're in a path right now. World Vision is doing a tremendous job of, you know, providing clean water for everyone by 2030. I mean, it, it's improved about 50% over the last 20 years. So there are so many opportunities. I'm so grateful to be alive in 2021. You know, I almost died a long time ago, but I'm so grateful to be alive because I feel like we've never had more resources. I mean, from podcasts like this to videos that we make to um, social media, to connecting with people. I mean, I'm just amazed that like I'll follow someone, they'll follow back. Now we're having a conversation. Now it's collaboration. Now we're making a difference together. And it just all happens like, you know, bing, bing, bing. And now lives are changed. And I just love that. I, I love being alive in that environment. And so, uh, yeah, just think clearly as you can about who you can serve. At the end of your life, what do you want to be said true about how you lived? You know, and that's going to be serving. And or if money was no factor, who would you serve? What would that look like? And those are ways to help identify some of that passion that you have and, and some of that purpose that can surface and that you can start to run with now. And yeah. just start small. Don't despise small beginnings and watch what it can grow into. Yep. And I will say what you alluded to and said there, you, you'll find your greatest joy when you're figuring out how you can serve and help others to flourish. You've heard on the show, if you've listened to more than a few episodes, that my purpose, my why is to help others to flourish and make good things better, right? And that's when I learned that I could actually do what I love to do and help others. And that's when I just really felt like, okay, there, there is a joy there that is so far and above just seeking, 
you know, whether it's money, whether it's your own acclaim, whether it's whatever it is, you know, there was a time where I wanted to be up on stage all the time and be, you know, that guy that's traveling and doing this and that and the other thing. And, and I realized, you know what, that's not nearly as fulfilling as being able to really dive into lives and be able to help people, you know, as a coach, Mm -hmm. as a, as a dad, right. As you know, to be able to know that those platforms. So on that note, what is your personal, why your purpose and how are you living that out every day? Yeah. And, and Phil, I think this podcast is just what you're talking about, where you start it because you enjoy sports. You want to connect with different coaches, athletes, parents. And then out of that, you know, you're already serving orphans so well around the world. And then now it starts to combine and you see the potential with athletes and orphans. And it just starts to grow. And I believe some of the greatest things in life are not planned, but mm-hmm. you just start serving people and making a difference. And then look what you step into. I know a guy that during COVID just wanted to start you know, giving people food who needed food. Simply that was his desire. He works full time. He's got, you know, kids, a family, a wife, and now he's given out almost 20 million pounds of food and he's built yeah. teams, you know, during the pandemic. So there, there's just no limits when, when you go down that road. And I, I think faith is, is part of it too. You know, I love to spread hope and I love to spread the hope of Jesus is what changed my life. I don't know anyone that brings more hope than Jesus and that relationship, you know, it's based on grace. It's not earned. It's not rules, religion, rituals. This is a relationship, grace and undeserved gift. And just enjoying that relationship has, has brought me so much hope. And I think there's a hope in uh, just living like Jesus. And uh, I think hope is something that, you know, is gritty. It's not just wimpy. I think there's a foundation for our lives with hope. It's not just, you know, kind of comes and goes randomly, but I think it's, it's attached to this foundation, a house on a rock, not a house in the sand. And I love it when people experience hope. I think you can have hope and grieve at the same time. It doesn't mean that you don't feel pain, but we need more hope. The Census Bureau said that during the pandemic, 48% of Americans feel hopeless. And this is a time where I think that finding and spreading hope is significant. And, and I love to do that, you know, even just whether it's local and meeting needs. So we've got an event at our church this Friday, this weekend, actually Saturday morning, we're putting, you know, things together Friday and then it's Saturday where hundreds of families will come to the church and just build relationships. They'll get to take anything they want. And we just have massive amounts of supplies and resources. And I just love to see, you know, the faces, the hope just through an event like that digitally, you know, different opportunities. We built a website, jessebradley.org. If you want to go there, love to connect with anyone, social media as well, but we just put up free resources. We've got videos on marriage because, you know, half the marriages in our country are ending in divorce. We need hope for marriage. And so we put together a video uh, course for that. And then there's lots of different topics, hope for the future, habits that lead to hope, a foundation of hope, practical roadmap for hope, but you, you can discover it on the website. And again, just love to connect with anyone that's listening too. Yeah, those are some great, uh, great resources. I've, I haven't gone through all of them in preparation for this, but, but quite a few of them, quite a few of them. And they are, they are solid, solid stuff. So I, I, we will have that on the show notes as well, but it's jessebradley.org. Pretty, pretty easy to remember. Now we have our last couple questions that we ask everybody. So I'd love to hear your responses to this, as I'm sure some people listen to the show, look forward to these questions every time too. But the first one is, what did you learn? What have you learned directly from the game? of soccer that you use in your marriage and parenting. And the example that I always use is retaliator gets the red, right? Like the, that idea of, 
you know, with my kids that, Hey, if you're fighting and they say, well, he started it. Well, you know what? The retaliator gets the red, right? So you don't, mm-hmm. don't escalate, right? Not necessarily fair. Now with VAR, of course, that's not as accurate. They always call me on that now, but we don't have VAR in our life. But anyway, so what, what is something that you've taken directly from the game that you use in your marriage parenting? You know, in the game, I was very competitive and, and wanted to win. And I think it's important to recognize what is winning in different settings and that you're really chasing the right goal. And, and that's so important. And I think winning, let's say there's conflict in the marriage, winning isn't trying to prove you're right <laughs> and the other person wrong and take them down and you prevail. So that's where it could really go sideways. But winning is actually connecting and staying united in marriage. That's the wing. So what's it going to take to win? I think for me, some of that competitive drive and in my wife and I have different strengths and I'm so grateful for her. She is so honed into the details. And sometimes I'm big picture, you know, which can help. But sometimes like I got to get my act together and like get in there and figure out like, this assignment or this teacher or get a ride to this game or practice. And so like, I got to keep entering into details and I'm so grateful. She's so strong at that. Just like a team, you know, different strengths and complement each other. But, but I, I was thinking that I think there's a competitive drive in me to have a healthy family. And I think that's the win. And, you know, I mentioned my parents got divorced when I was growing up, you know, it's like, okay, how could I have, you know, by God's grace, a healthy marriage, or how could my kids have things that I didn't have? And I think it's shifting. My drive is there. I mean, it's just strong. That's who I am. It, it's not going to go away. I'm just not a passive guy. I'm just not a, yeah, let's just see what happens kind of guy. Like I, I'm intentional, you know, I'm going for it. That's how I'm wired, but I've got to identify the right win and then figure out what it's going to look like to get there. And, and part of that is guarding that healthy culture in the family. I think that's what's, what's been clear. Yeah, that's great. I've talked a lot about that recently is especially with very task focused, driven, outgoing people, they need results. They need wins. They're super competitive. And sometimes we need to redefine that win. we need to redefine that result that we're getting, otherwise we'll be discontent all the time and unhealthy all the time. And so totally get that. And that's something that I've Again, even going back to that why, to know your why, that's really what is your goal. That's what really, what are you, you know, and we talked about writing your eulogy to understand as you talked about what is that at the end of your life you want people to mm-hmm. say about you. Yeah. And that idea, that's really your win. If you hit that, that's your win. So to know that mm-hmm. is is absolutely critical. Otherwise, you'll just be, you know, as they say, that old, that old, uh, adage of don't, you know, make sure your ladder's on the right building, right? So yeah. if you don't know what building you're even trying to climb, yeah. then it's really hard to know whether it's a win. You're going to let the world define what a win is. And that's, it's, that's never a good thing. And what a hollow feeling to spend your whole life climbing a ladder and then near the end, realize it's the wrong ladder, it's the wrong yeah, building, exactly, you know? Exactly. And, and I'll tell you, there's a lot of pastors, there's a lot of driven people, there's a lot of business leaders who just want to take the next mountain. And I rarely hear at the end of life, and I've been around a lot of people at the end of their lives, I, I've rarely heard someone say, oh, I wish I would have worked a little more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. there's a whole lot of people that say investing in the family in having better family relationships, that's, that's where they would have adjusted. So yeah, ho- hopefully that helps me, helps us. We're lifelong learners. Parents, parenting stretches all of us. 
you know, and, and, and it's an opportunity to grow. There's no greater opportunity to grow. I mean, the person who's going to help you grow the most is the person you're married to. They know you the best that, you know, those, those differences, but I'll, I'll let you go back to your question. We can, like we said, we can talk for days on all these things, but uh, the last question we got, and we'll wrap it up here. What have you read, listened to, or watched that has most impacted your thinking on how soccer explains life and leadership? Yeah. You know, I'm someone who's always been relational, intuitive, learned by experience. And so, you know, I feel like I don't have, I haven't picked up something better than the coach I had in college, mm. you know, and I felt like anything was safe to talk about. And I felt like you could go into his office, talk about life, talk about soccer, talk about your playing time. And, and it would be a great conversation. And, and also he had a way of creating this family feel. And, you know, sometimes we throw that around like, oh, this church is a family, this business is a family, or, you know, whatever team it is, you know, pick your favorite team, the Sounders family. And sometimes we throw that around kind of loosely and, and it's, it's not really the case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's really not family. Yeah. And, and when you actually get an experience that is family, you know, I'm still emailing, Zoom, getting together with, you know, I've got an opportunity to talk to the Dartmouth men's soccer team's going to play the Huskies, University of Washington. Hmm. And um, I get a chance to talk to the team here in, in another week or so. And I mean, that's just what stands out to me is, is that family that's created. And when you get a taste of that, you don't want to settle for less, you know, and when you get a taste of that on the field, like you want to experience that and create that in other settings. And, uh, and sometimes, honestly, that was hard for me in the church. Cause I thought, man, on the soccer team, like we got along well, we went all out and it was just for some rings, you know, and that was the goal. And I thought in church, like we're actually seeing lives change. Like, <laughs> why would we kind of go halfway or why would we have petty conflict? Like let's, if we could figure it out in the soccer locker room, like let's do this in other arenas too. So yeah, trying to carry that over. But, but I think that's, that's probably what stood out to me the most, but then I see it in different teams. I mean, it's like when Liverpool just had their great run, you know, and, and you listen to the players, listen to the coach. I know I watched, you know, Allison, anytime there's another goalkeeper that loves Jesus, you know, it's like, okay, yeah. you got, you got my attention. And I'm watching Firmino get baptized on a road trip, you know, and mm-hmm. cool. I was thinking like, it, it just looks like family to me. You know, they score a goal. It looks like family. It doesn't look professional. Um, yeah. It's got all those elements, but it's like, it transcends. And, and honestly, it's almost harder in the professional level to create that family field in the college. And, you know, high school, I think is even easier in some ways, but the more you go up to create that family feel, there's just a joy and a connection and a trust and a closeness. And to me, that's where life's at its best. You're not going to find anything greater than love. And when, when a coach can bring that in and lead the team into that, man, that's, that's top notch stuff. Yeah. You know, I totally agree. And it, it, it pains me to, to say how much I enjoyed watching that with Allison and Firmino and, and even Allison scoring the goal last season, you know, whatever that, that was yeah. phenomenal. As a Manchester United supporter, it's really hard for me okay. like anything that ever <laughs> happens at Liverpool. But you know, I, I have yeah. I have made an exception for that. That's okay, yeah. and I can say it actually in public and not feel like I've I've completely ruined my you know credibility as a United supporter. So good. some things transcend sport, right? Yeah. So that's that's yeah. absolutely to, or or <laughs> affinities maybe maybe not sport but affinities. Right. So, 
Anyway, well, th- thank you so much, Jesse. Thank you yeah. for your friendship. Thank you for this time together today. I very much appreciate you and, and uh, what you shared today. Enjoyed it, Phil. A uh, little jab at the Red Devils. But, you know, <laughs> I, I just have to say I appreciate what you're doing with orphans. It's far more significant than soccer. You know, our family, we adopted a child. It just means the world to me anytime someone's working with orphans. And so just keep up the good work. And I'm so thankful anyone who made it to the end of this podcast. We went long, <laughs> but... Just thanks for sticking with us and look forward to connecting. So thanks so much, Phil. Yeah, thank you. And and thank you everyone out there for, as you said, you know, this download for listening to this. And I just hope that you are learning right alongside me and, uh, and, and just really learning from these great people that we get to talk with. So with that, I just, again, want to encourage you, if you haven't done so already, go ahead and rate and view this show, Apple Podcasts, wherever else you're listening, go ahead and do that. Join us on Facebook at the How Soccer Explains Leadership Facebook group. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram and wherever else you do your social media. But most importantly, I do hope that you're taking what you're learning here and you're using it to help you be a better leader. You're using it to continually remind you that soccer does explain life and leadership. Thanks a lot. Have a great week.